And while you may hate the idea of paying for a phone call, that one phone call can save you tons of money down the road. And so you got to look at it like that. Like they can provide you with guidance and navigating situations so that you can avoid a lawsuit. Because if, if you don't avoid a lawsuit and you do something without asking, it could be really costly later. Hello, Positive Leaders. Thanks for joining us today. You are listening to the Positive Leadership Podcast with Andrea Crabtree and David List, a podcast for everything a veterinary manager needs to know to get the job done. We've been there and we know how hard it is and are here to help share our knowledge and expertise to elevate you. I'm Andrea Crabtree, co-founder of Positive Leadership Podcast, owner of FurPause Consulting, a certified veterinary practice manager, and HR certified professional. And I'm David Liss, co-founder of the Positive Leadership Podcast. I'm also a certified veterinary practice manager, hold an MBA, and I'm a registered veterinary technician. And this podcast is for you, the veterinary practice manager, supervisor, leader. We want to elevate you by equipping you with relevant content, material, guidelines, instruction, feedback, and pro tricks and tips. We will deliver real life experience along with our super smart guests that will get you through the obstacles that you're facing today with some bloopers and blunders along the way to remind you that you're not alone. FurPaws Consulting has deep expertise in helping veterinary practices reach their full potential for all types of practices, whether specialty, emergency, or general practice, by working alongside the practice owner and manager. Are you a practice owner or practice manager with a challenge and not enough bandwidth to tackle it? Reach out to me, Andrea Crabtree, owner of FurPaws Consulting, with the question that keeps you up at night. I'm able to provide expertise and insight to navigate those tricky obstacles. Find my info in the show notes, email me at andrea at furpaws.us, or check out my website at www.furpawsconsulting.com. Hello, positive leaders. Oh, it's so good to be back with you all again. We are so excited to have another super smart guest on the podcast. Uh, We can introduce Jennifer Jackman, who is an attorney partner at Whiteford, Taylor, and Preston LLP. She is the co-chair of the litigation department, co-chair of the labor and employment section, and um, is basically an employment law attorney that spoke at the Veterinary Hospital Manager Association's meeting recently. So welcome, Jennifer, to the podcast. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So we have this tradition uh, on the podcast where we don't like to read a stuffy bio. We like you to tell all of our listeners about yourself. So without having to read your bio, who is Jennifer Jackman? And again, thank you so much for coming on. Sure. Um, Well, I am a married mom of three amazing kids, ages 11, 15, and 18, one who I just took off to college last week. And as you, (laughs) yes, bittersweet, right? Still a little bit tender about that, but yes, they're fabulous. And um, in my spare time, I'm a full time lawyer. And in that practice, I focus on employment law, primarily management side. So In that, I provide advice to clients on all matters that um, relate to the employment relationship from hiring to firing and conduct investigations. Um, I litigate. If need be, I defend or prosecute claims, and we provide a lot of workplace training. Um, So that's kind of me in a nutshell. Awesome. Well, thank you. So we also have this tradition where we like to ask our guests about a favorite book 
or podcast or you know continuing education credit or unit or class that you took that had a really lasting effect on you either in your life in your profession or in the area of employment law do you have something that you just you know refer back to or remember that really affected you in a deep way yeah, that's a really tough question because I actually love to read and have only recently got into the podcast more. But I would say that out of reading or a podcast, there was a podcast that really resonated with me. And that one's called Nice White Parents. And it was it dealt with the issue of what wow is, it's quite yeah. a title yeah it's and it was a pretty <laughs> heavy the same thing right yeah yeah and it was a pretty heavy topic but it dealt with the issue of what was thought to be a huge impediment in in educational integration and equality which ends up potentially being white parents and it took you through a school system in New York City that was predominantly black and latino and showed how a group of white parents decided to send their kids to that neighborhood school as opposed to private schools, as though that was, you know, something really innovative. That's how they felt. And the podcast details what those parents did and how those parents, although they believed they were improving the school, they were actually having the opposite effect. And so it was actually really eye-opening to see the various perspectives, but also to get a deeper understanding of what are huge inequalities in education that still exist. So it was really hard to listen to at times, but made me appreciate how my own actions, even if I have the best intentions, can have the opposite impact. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you're an employment law attorney. And for clarification, tell me, do you typically defend the employees or the employer? Meaning, are you on our side or their side? <laughs> well, I think our side is the management side. So that's where I typically yes. am. Um, so yes. <laughs> I just um, wanted to a- clarify that. Um, David and I are both California HR certified, and this state is the only state that has its own HR certification. I know you are not practiced, um, a licensed to practice in California, and I can only assume why, because our state is crazy. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about employment law. Like if that's, that's your thing, that's your lane, that's your passion. What makes employment law so amazing to you? Why is that your passion? Why is I absolutely love what I do. And, uh, you know, people spend more time at work than with families a lot of times. I mean, obviously, this past 18 months has been a bit different um, with people right, shifting yeah. to remote world. <laughs> but in a normal environment, we, you're in the office all the time with people. And especially for veterinarians, you know, they're still they're They're going to work. They're practicing medicine daily with their staff. And sometimes these issues can become really personal. And so what I love about what I do is it allows me to become a strategic partner with my clients and really understand their business models so we can make the best decisions for that specific organization. So even though it's employment, I, I love getting to know that specific business and getting educated in specifically what they do. I have an undergrad degree in education, and I get to use that for training managers and staff hmm, on, um, yeah, on workplace issues and compliance, which is amazing. And I also love conducting investigations and reviewing documents. A lot of attorneys hate that, but I love right, doing it weird. to kind of get to the bottom of the story <laughs> right. and look for that like smoking gun or like you know just the the little crack in a story. But what that comes a lot of responsibility because it it can be very personal. So you have to navigate those issues carefully. People generally don't like having mm-hmm. their emails read or sure. questioned about yeah, intimate details. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Sure. 
so that lets me use my other undergrad degree, which was in psychology. Uh, so what I love best is it's never boring. When the phone rings, you never know what the next problem will be, right, mundane right. or not. So it's right. exciting. Oh, that's great. And that leads us kind of into the first part of the of the meat of this. So, you know, we have a lot of mostly managers that are listening to the podcast. And if we have any employees, for those of you all out there, the point of this session is not to figure out how to ways to fire you. It's ways to figure out how to lead great teams. And sometimes there's bad team members, right? They're not pulling their weight. If we have a team member or an employee who is in essentially a protected class, so in this case, maybe we'll use the um, example of a pregnant employee or an employee on a disability. And this issue that we have with them truly has nothing to do with that. You know, let's say they are, they're just so not aligned with our core values. They, you know, let's say have a bad attitude. They use, you know, profanity. They, you know, are, are chronically late and, you know, either have not requested an accommodation for that, or that wasn't kind of in a lot of the discussions of what they needed to manage this. You know, and and so unfortunately, they're just not a great team member. They are bringing the business down. And, you know, un- unfortunately, a lot of the other employees actually go to the managers and say, we're having a hard time working with this person. And again, let me make it clear, it is not related to that. It's, you know, it's not at the core issue because they are pregnant. It's how do we go about working through the process of separating and or terminating an employee that has that kind of series of an issue, because that's certainly a thing that as HR certified, Andrea and myself would take pause and get a little bit of a panic attack. And I can only imagine a small business, you know, veterinary clinic manager who's never had a lot of HR training would possibly fall backwards over their chair in order to figure out how to how to work through this. So how can we do this if we just have a really awful team member and we hate to do this, it would completely break our hearts, but they are just not working out. So what you've talked about, you've said a couple things. One would be if they've requested an accommodation that's just unreasonable, and we can talk about that. But also, if their performance or attitude is so bad, um, almost, you know, do they have this cloak of protection around them because they have a protected factor? And, you know, the, the answer is you have to be careful. I mean, it, you have to tread carefully through these. These can be some of the most challenging issues for a manager to navigate that are so fraught with potential liability. So yes, it's a very difficult area. First, if you're talking about a performance. So we'll talk about the request for an accommodation separately. But if it's a performance-based issue, or they have a bad attitude, like you said, or they're just terrible, you know, people skills when you have clients and patients coming in, that you need a document. And so as long as that's separate from the disability, you want to document that performance. And so reasonable accommodations have to be reasonable. They can't, but a reasonable accommodation is not allowing someone to be a jerk or allowing someone to not perform well. So if they are in a behavioral issue, you need to manage that by documenting it. And that's something that people get really tired of listening to me say is document, but yeah, document, document, document. <laughs> right. But it is critically important. Um, one, you just forget what happens sometimes, right. but two, you're putting the employee on notice and creating a trail so that if there is an ugly separation or a lawsuit afterwards, you have evidence that, yeah, you did put them on notice. And so you're going to hopefully have a handbook that's 
talks about your discipline policy and you're going to want to follow that. And so the fact that they may have a protected status or have a disability or might be pregnant, that doesn't change that provided that you're being consistent. So what you want to avoid, obviously, is now looking at them a little bit different, having a different lens that you're viewing them through, because if they're engaging in the same behavior that someone who does not have that condition is engaging in, you need to make sure you're you're treating them the same way. So as long as you're being consistent, you can discipline that and you can terminate for that. But I often like advise, consult with your attorney just to make sure you're doing everything right. The, the difference is with the accommodation request is that's a little bit different when you had mentioned something like, what if they only want to come in and work a couple hours a day or something that doesn't work within in your business needs? And that's different. I mean, you have to look at whether or not the request for an accommodation is reasonable. And what we think is unreasonable, the EEOC doesn't always agree with. And so you can't just say it, it, it costs more money or more, you know, people have to pick up the slack. I mean, at that point, you're going to want to start documenting what business needs are not being met so that you would be able to show, no, that's not a reasonable accommodation. Your patient care is lacking. It's creating liability, something like that. But if you can accommodate, you typically do want to, provided that you can still meet your business needs. It might mean you have to hire a temp for part of that time. And then it gets harder when what happens if you hire a temp and they perform better than the employee who was there. Right. <laughs> you right. Still right. Have to, right? And that, yeah. that does happen. Or you find out mm-hmm. afterwards that the employee who wasn't doing well anyway, when now when they're on leave, has actually, you know, has made even more mistakes than you thought. And how do you handle mm-hmm. that? But mm-hmm. you know, the, mm-hmm. the failure to accommodate claims are tricky. The disciplining protected employee or who who seems to have extra protection is tricky, but it's totally doable. But the first thing you want to do is follow your policy and document. If you if it requires a written warning, give that written warning first. Now, if it's egregious behavior, you're not going to do that. I mean, if they come in and punch somebody in the nose, you're not going to give them a written warning. Different story, right? right. There's <laughs> right, a ticket. Right. But if they're if they're routinely delinquent or tardy getting to work, you're going to follow what their policy is and give that warning and, and you know give them a chance to cure that behavior just like you would anybody else who didn't have that protected status. Gotcha. So let me ask you this as a, just a quick follow up. So let's say you know I have a uh, let's say a pregnant employee and they you know they let's say objective and pretty structured about what they need to do so here's the phone script they pick up the phone they say you know abc animal hospital how may i help you there's some stuff in there about they have to do it with a smile la 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 so i go up there and this person says you know what do you want and i say okay so i pull them in the office and i say you know that's unacceptable it's not aligned with this expectation here's your warning etc they do it a few times I then say, okay, we've got three write-ups according to the handbook for, you know, failure to um, kind of, you know, perform to this CSR standard and follow the script, we're going to terminate you. And the employee in that meeting, you know, right there says that, you know, the medication's making me upset or pregnancy's making me crazy. And, And so they make some claim that, you know, I as a manager would feel like, what's the action I need to take immediately? Because I know a lot of times, when you kind of talk about HR stuff, a lot of times the managers, we feel like we need to solve or react to something immediately. And a lot of times you guys say either keep them working and do some thinking or call your lawyer or do some investigation, or possibly if it's some issue, you know, suspend them. That's not a termination, you know, you suspend them while you can kind of figure out what you're doing. 
So what I would first say is if, if you're at that termination meeting versus at that first strike <laughs> or first warning meeting, if you've already made the decision to terminate, there is absolutely nothing requiring you to rescind that decision just because they now tell you they have a condition because they haven't previously asked for help. So in that situation, if, especially if you've already given them warnings and they've never done anything, my recommendation often is before you meet with that employee to give them that news, you want to document that the decision was already made so they can't come back and say, well, he only fired me because I raised this issue. And so it might be just, you know, emailing your manager or, you know, just exchanging an email that says, just to confirm, we've made the decision, we're going to terminate. That's great. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's good because especially for retaliation claims, it shows that the decision was made before any protected conduct. So that's really important. Yeah, right. You know, it, it, but if they do bring it up in the last um, meeting when you're doing the termination, if you really do think that there's some legitimacy to that, again, you don't have to rescind the decision. But if, you know, you're feeling like, okay, maybe I am going to give them a second chance, you can. But again, there's no requirement to do so once you've gotten to that point. Especially because at that point, they're probably a crappy employee no matter what's happening, right? Right, like, right. I mean, we've had many write-ups have we had and conversations that we've gone through. Yeah. I mean, where you might see something is if you hadn't had this evolution of, of behavior going on and it was more of it was so out of character that all right. of a sudden, you right. know, then you might say, okay, I'm going to give you another chance. But here's the advice I give regardless. So so if you're thinking about that, or it's that first warning and the employee says, you know, sometimes we see it like, let's say they are a different example. They have been making lots of mistakes and um, you're documenting that. And they say, well, hold on. My ADHD has gotten out of control. My medication's not working anymore. That kind of thing. Or, you know, whatever example you were having. What I would say at that point, the first thing that should come out of your mouth is, how can I help you? Right. How, that's where yeah. you give pause. Yeah. How can yeah. I help you? What can we do at ABC Clinic to s- help you successfully perform the essential functions of your job? And then it punts it to them to say, well, here's what I need, you know, and if it, it is a medication issue or they need to get, you know, exactly some kind of therapy or time off to adjust, then they can request that. But you never want to offer an accommodation to them because then you can get in trouble for what's called regarding them as disabled. So let them come up with it, you know, that you invite it by saying, how can I help you? You're telling me you have this issue. What can I do? And then if they make that request, if they say, well, I need time off to get my medication right, you know, so that it'll help my mental health or, or it'll help me with my ADHD or whatever the issue is, then you're going to follow the reasonable accommodation process, which would be giving them a document that they have their medical care professional fill out that attests to the fact, yes, they have this issue and this is what the accommodation request is. And then that's when you go through and determine whether it's reasonable or not and whether you can grant it. And so when you're looking at that first issue with, you know, if you have the first warning and they tell you that, then maybe you do let them do that. But a reasonable accommodation is never allowing the bad behavior. That's not a reasonable accommodation. It might be time to get treatment. We also see this with alcoholism. If someone's had a relapse, the, if they've been engaging in bizarre or offensive conduct in the workplace, it doesn't, the alcoholism does not excuse that bad conduct. 
But if they, you know, if you haven't reached that point of termination and they ask for time off or treatment, that's the reasonable accommodation. So you're always, you know, you you always want to accommodate the condition to allow them to perform the essential functions of the job. But the essential functions of the job typically require doing the job well. And not the bad behavior. Exactly. Yeah. What I see a lot, Jennifer, is when an employee will come to me as a practice manager and complain about usually an associate, oftentimes even the practice owner, and they're complaining that the veterinarian is treating them poorly, that there's shouting and yelling and profanity and treating them as if they're stupid in the middle of the treatment area among peers. And it's almost to the point of some type of harassment or even discrimination. And at, at that point, it's it's borderline, right? And especially when it's someone in a senior position like a veterinarian or a, God forbid, the practice owner, because that's always a precarious situation. So tell me when these types of things come up, how can I as a practice manager do a good investigation? And, and I say that because, you know, we talk about keeping things confidential, but our practices are so small. And and I use the example of when there's a female technician and she's no longer taking x-rays and cleaning cat boxes, the first thing that everybody says is, oh, she's pregnant. And I'm like, hey, listen, I didn't say anything, <laughs> right? right? Our practices are so tiny that everybody <laughs> knows when Susie's not taking x-rays anymore that she's pregnant. And so when we talk about doing an investigation and doing a thorough investigation and really trying to get to the bottom of, did this veterinarian really say this or did this, you know, um, incident really happen when we start getting into these investigations, like number one, how the hell do we do this? And how do we do it confidentially where other people aren't assuming or already knowing what's going on? Can you kind of walk us through some of that? Yeah, um, sure. So first, I mean, the main, the first question is, do you need to conduct an investigation? And so when you're talking about that, those allegations of conduct where, where someone's being a jerk or bullying them or treating them badly, the first thing you have to find out is, is it unlawful behavior? Is it based on a protected factor versus are they an equal opportunity jerk? And then if they're an equal opportunity <laughs> They don't care who's in front of them, they're a jerk. Right. And and there are plenty of those out there. But if they are an equal opportunity jerk, then you have to say, okay, well, are we even going to condone that? Or do we still want to do an investigation? But not every claim requires an investigation. But let's assume that they raise enough allegations, like you said, that are kind of on the border. The first thing I would do as a practice manager is talk to that employee and just ask some introductory questions. You know, who, what, when, why, and how. Who, what happened? Who is doing it? And then, unless it's a sexual harassment claim, so it's kind of an obvious, why do you think they're doing it? Because that will call out is it because you're a woman? Is it because you're a man? Is it because of your race? Is it, you know, f- try to figure out from them why do you think they're doing it? Are there any witnesses? And then the first thing you're going to do after that is document that conversation. And you were saying it, Andrea, too, but like document, document, document. It's actually a lot easier than you think. You don't have to write up the whole big memo. You can send yourself an email. Um, then right. it's date stamps, yes. times, you know. Yeah. 
It's exactly what I tell people to do is just send yeah. yourself an email and you know, you can CC the person on it just to follow up with our conversation today. I want to make sure I heard you correctly. Like this is the summary of what we talked about today. Do you agree? Is there anything you want to add to it? Exactly. Or sometimes just send it to my practice owner, say, Hey, listen, this is what I found out today. So-and-so came and talked to me about this. I just wanted to loop you in or FYI, or yeah, you're right. Send it to myself. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and that's all that's needed at that point. But then you've got to figure out from what they've told you during that initial meeting, does it generate enough concern that is something that needs to be investigated? Again, if it goes against just your ideals within your practice, that regardless of whether it's based on a protected factor or not, or whether it's illegal, you're still not going to condone it. You still want to do the investigation. If it involves any kind of protected factor, race, religion, gender, you know, anything, you have to investigate it. And so th at that point, you're going to thank them, you know, thank them for coming forward. Let them know you take this seriously. Let them know you're going to conduct an investigation. Let them know how they should expect to be contacted, whether it's going to be you or whether you're going to get outside counsel or some other external person to come in and, and conduct an independent investigation and let them know retaliation is prohibited. And that's really important. And explaining to them that if someone finds out that they've complained about this and start treating them differently because of that, they need to know right away because that's not allowed. And then the scope of the investigation really depends on the allegations and the witnesses. I mean, I've done some investigations that are, are worldwide because of the different people involved, and I've done some that involve two people. So if there are witnesses where it sounds like it's a pattern and practice, not just an isolated issue, you're going to have more people. But you want to start with what's the universe of our potential witnesses? And if, if it's a very small practice, it's going to be pretty limited. If it's a big practice, you still want to limit it to the witnesses you really think you need to go after and not everybody, because you want to try to avoid disruption as much as possible. But you're right, the confidentiality part is really it's hard. It's it hard. is. It's, it's almost impossible to, to ensure it. And you let them know you're keeping things confidential. Right. But other people but, talk. Yeah. yeah. And so I ask the them, obvious. I say, you know, I'm asking you keep this confidential. Now you can't tell somebody who's complaining of discrimination that they can't tell anyone, right? That's unlawful. But what you can do is say, for purposes of this investigation, I would ask that you keep our conversation confidential. I ask that you keep from at least everybody in this organization that don't let them know this is going on because it protects the integrity of the process. It also protects you from retaliation. And I tell the witnesses that, and I tell the person who may be the target of the complaint that, that it protects them from claims of retaliation. And so, you know, you can't control the water cooler talk, right. but you can do your best to limit it. And, you know, I've had some, I've had definitely some success with that, but some people are just going to talk. It's a bit, a lot easier when everybody will, when, if it's remote or if you conduct the interviews outside of the practice. Because, you know, especially if you bring in a lawyer, you don't want them coming in in their suit with a briefcase and in, yeah, your, right, in one of right. your rooms. But, you know, trying to do it not in, so it makes it obvious that something's going on. But the confidentiality part is really hard to do. But you want to you wanna do a thorough investigation, but you don't want to open Pandora's box. So that can be tricky in trying to figure out who really are the relevant and necessary witnesses doing it in the least disruptive way without opening that Pandora's box. 
And then if I decide on some type of discipline or outcome, how am I allowed to disclose that then to the person that originally complained? Like, how do I go back to them and say, okay, I did this investigation. I found it. It was true. And so I told them that they're never allowed to do this again and made them take a sexual harassment training class. Like, I'm at, am I allowed to go back and tell that person then this happened? Because it's discipline, I would say, you know, no, I'm going to protect that because I don't, I'm not going to go around telling people who got rolled up or who, you know, who got suspended or things like that. I mean, they can figure that out on their own, but I'm not going to tell them that. So how do we resolve that then back where you said someone's going to be contacting you? How do we resolve that back to the original person who complains? So at the conclusion of the investigation, you definitely want to close the loop with the complainant, but you don't need to tell them what happened. You can tell them that sometimes, if, and it depends on what the result of the investigation was. If the investigation was there was no improper conduct or you know you could not find that there was improper conduct, which is actually a little bit different than saying there was none because that just There's means no evidence. there wasn't yeah. enough evidence mm-hmm. of it, right? Mm-hmm. So you're not discrediting them and saying, we don't believe you. You can say, listen, we did the investigation. We were unable to conclude that there was improper conduct, but we have counseled the person and the matter is now closed. If anything else happens in the future, please let us know. And then also talk to them again about retaliation. If you did find improper conduct, I don't let them know what the exact findings necessarily were or what the discipline was. I try I try to keep that confidential. You will usually prepare a report. I do not give them a copy of the report. And what I would say in that situation is, We've concluded the investigation. We have determined that, you know, that there were improvements that could be made or that there was conduct that we do not condone and we've taken appropriate action. And if this ever continues again, you need to let me know immediately so that we can take action again. Sometimes the action you take is really obvious because the person might be fired. Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) Makes sense. So leave of absence stuff is, I mean, I'm sure it's a bit of a minefield. The reason why I wanted to bring it up is, and we're not, obviously you could give probably 16 hours or more on, on, you know, lectures on this stuff, is that California recently lowered the requirements for the California Family Rights Act, basically our our RFMLA or state FMLA down to five employers or more. And so that's huge because now small, I mean, like, yeah, all, that's like everybody, business, everybody. Yeah, they, yeah, exactly. Every business. And we have to offer 12 weeks unpaid leave, you know, with, the, with all the restrictions. So it's obviously become quite complicated. And I know you can't speak to the California stuff, but kind of the FMLA. So the federal level kind of mandated job protected leave that employees can access when it is a um, covered employer uh, at, at, you know, 50 employers or more. So like nationwide, people are probably listening going, man, California is crazy. But if there are larger practices in states that don't have any like state leave laws, um, or they do, and it's still 50. So, you know, larger, larger practices, certainly multi-site or things like that. You know, do you have any kind of general tips or advice on how to handle some of these things. So somebody comes to me, I, I have a practice with 52 people covered under FMLA. And somebody says, you know, my mom's going to have major surgery, I need, you know, six weeks off. And so the kind of first thing that I would think is, sure, you know, you you agree or whatever, when in reality, you can put them through a bit of a process, then the question is, you know, can you even ask for supporting documentation? You know, is that allowed? Because of course, I think, especially as managers or owners of practices, we're a little hesitant and we want to make sure that what the employees are telling us is true. So maybe they're not telling the truth. So can we, you know, ask for things to validate? If you were to give us just kind of a short diatribe on how to think about processing 
protected job protective leaves of absence that are more extended? Do you have some kind of, you know, maybe top three things we should watch for or just a a process that goes through your mind that you think is pretty easy to kind of pass down, but just as some general advice? Yeah, sure. So first, even if you meet the eligibility criteria for the minimum number of employees, you still want to look to see if the employee is eligible and make sure you notify them of their rights. So that's the first thing. So even if you have more than 50 or over the threshold for California, you also want to look at some of the other criteria. So under FMLA, for example, has the employee been there for at least 12 months? You've already figured out you've got employees enough to trigger coverage. And so first, you want to make sure you're determining that eligibility. If they're eligible, then you want to move to the next step, which I call the certification step. And that's where you're right. You can put them through a process and you should put them through a process and not to be, you know, (laughs) arduous or obstructionist about it, but you want to treat employees the same way. Now it's different. For example, a little bit, if you have an employee who's pregnant, they're clearly pregnant, you're still going to get, but you're still going to (laughs) get that medical documentation, right? So you don't want to treat them differently than you're going to treat somebody else who it may not be as obvious. So you go ahead and you get that medical certification. In terms of the notification, once you know that they have a qualifying condition, you do need to send them that notice of their rights. For federal, it's it's a model notice that you can find on the Department of Labor website. And that just requests information that allows you to determine whether there's a qualifying event. And then that's the form that they would be giving to their medical care provider to show that you know they are covered. And that form is very basic. And so once you get that certification and it shows that the need is clear and you've already determined they're eligible, you need to grant the leave. If clarification is needed, um, you know, you think, for example, that the employee, God forbid, fraudulently filled out this form and you don't think it's accurate. You can call the medical care provider to authenticate it only. You can't ask additional questions and the amount of information you can get is very limited and you want it to be limited. Or if you can't read the handwriting, you can call just to do that, but that's it. You can't get more information. And then once the leave begins, you just want to make sure you keep track of it as it's being taken. Some of the more challenging ones are when it's intermittent leave. Again, you're right. You could talk 12 hours about that and it would be really boring, but (laughs) you can. uh, Intermittent leave is challenging, but you just want to make sure you're tracking it appropriately and making sure you're holding their job open for when they return, right? That's one of the major protections with this leave is that they have a job to return to when it's over. So those are really the big things. And I would just say, except for the one in California you said that is a little overbroad, <laughs> it, don't look at FMLA as you know an enemy sometimes because, or don't be afraid to give people notice of it ahead of time and try to have them take it because if they're consistently absent for a medical condition and you don't put them on FMLA, none of that time counts towards that 12 week period. So the sooner you put them on FMLA leave, the sooner you start tracking those hours because that job protection really is only that 12 week period. Although there is a caveat to that. And that has to do with if they come back and it's a disability related issue and they ask for extended leave, sometimes you are required to extend it at that point. Yeah. And I'd like to point out, Jennifer, that that whole process that you talk about in, I don't know, other states, but in California, we call it the interactive process. And I yeah. I do coach my managers on a regular basis is to talk to them because 
employees are not required to know the laws and what they're eligible to take, right? That's our job as human resources, as managers. And so when they come and they say, hey, my my mom's got to have surgery, like in what the case David was saying, or it's somebody else having the baby, but not them, right? But it's their child. Uh Then then we have to be able to say, hey, you're entitled to some medical leave here. And it sucks for us now because in California, we have to honor that with five or more employees. And with 50, it's much easier. Well, it's a a little bit easier to do than with five because, you know, you're missing 20% of your staff if one of them go out. That's much harder. But I think that what's important is that just identifying that that interactive process and that is just having the conversation. It's saying like, oh, hey, what do you need? Oh, hey, you are pregnant. Okay, hey, I need you to go talk to your doctor and fill out this form. Or, you know, whatever the case may be. Okay, so you get 12 weeks or you're taking that all great. I'm going to follow up with you at week 10 and see how things are going, right? So it's just having that communication with the team member so that they are aware of what's going on. And, And if you need clarification, open up that dialogue, right? Say something. Absolutely. I agree with everything yeah, that you've so said. That interactive process is, is huge to me because most managers are like, well, I don't know what to do. Well, just talk to them. <laughs> just start with, have a conversation and see what's happening, see what's going on in their life. Well, and, yeah. and you hit the nail on the head with regard to not all employees understand their rights or what is available to them. And we've seen that even more with the COVID related legislation that's come out, you know, that leaves that have been allowed for that under federal law and what triggers them because you need to let them know of their rights under that too. Yeah. And so making sure that you're on top of that and notifying them and having those conversations is, is really important. Yeah. Huge. And you say like, you know, the employee, we, we talk about how the employees don't know. Well, I'll tell you what, most time in veterinary medicine, the managers don't know, the practice owners don't know. Right. There are so many laws that we have to stay on top of and to know all of them. I mean, there's, there's super itty bitty, tiny, minor ones that people don't, I don't know. I don't want to say minor, like I'm disregarding them, but silver air patrol and organ bone marrow donor, like we don't <laughs> see those every day, you know, right. like we we're 80% women in our field. So we get a lot of pregnancies. Like we're all pretty good at pregnancy disability <laughs> in our profession, you know? Right. So I, I think there's things that we don't think or we don't even know that we're supposed to be aware of as managers. And and that's hard because if our staff aren't supposed to be aware of it, we are, and we don't know, then we're really, you know, elbow deep in a bunch of hoopla. So if you could tell us three things, two, three, 10, 20, you know, we have all day <laughs> here. So give me like kind of the big ones that you see that are like these big mistakes, these big glaring elephants in the room, or like just things that will get us into some legal hot water in veterinary practices. Yeah. I mean, the first one is classification of employees or worse, misclassification of employees. And we haven't even talked about that, but you know, there's different classifications, right? Exempt uh, versus non-exempt is one. Uh, Exempt employees work the same amount of hour or however many hours get the same pay. They're not entitled to overtime, whereas non-exempt employees are entitled to overtime based on hours worked. Um, as well as independent contractor versus employee. And I get a lot of people saying, oh, that's my contractor. I've got an agreement with them that, you know, they're not on the benefits if they have benefits. And and those are, things can be very costly mistakes and you always want to make sure you're classifying them properly. Second would be not having a handbook 
or having a handbook that's out of date or not following your policies once you have them. Yes. Making sure that, you know, the worst thing than having no policy is having a good policy and not following it. So yes. making sure yeah. you have policies and you're familiar with them. They don't need to be a hundred pages long for a handbook, but you, you know, you want to have something that sets forth expectations, codes of conduct, progressive discipline, puts people on notice of what the expectations are. Um, but you need to follow it. So not only having it, but making sure you follow it. Don't let it, it sit on your shelf right. and collect dust. Exactly. Yeah. And then lack of documentation and performance issues. So just not letting something continue. If it's already bothering you after two weeks of that person being there, chances are it's not going to get better. It's kind <laughs> it's of like, you know, <laughs> it's, I talked about like, you know, it's you're hanging out with these people as much with if not more than your spouse or your partner, there's little things that annoy you initially just get worse, right? It's the same thing when you're working with somebody. And so if you <laughs> right. don't nip those in the bud early on, it's going to be hard to do it later. And so making sure you're documenting it early, not letting the problem just continue without notifying the employee, mm -hmm. and then making sure you're documenting things about mm -hmm. that. Those are really the top three, I think. I mean, we've talked about the management of leave properly. I think one of the hardest things, and I said it before and I'll say it again, is managing requests for accommodations with performance issues. I mean, those just, they don't get much trickier. Or the other issue when you've got a performance issue and right before they know, they see the writing on the wall, they engage in a protected activity and say there's been discrimination of some kind. If you don't have it properly documented, that's going to be really hard. And that's why I go back to once you've made that decision to terminate, make sure you document it because it helps you in the future. Yeah. And you had made mention about um, employee handbooks. And uh, one thing I will say I see a lot in veterinary medicine is recycled employee handbooks, right? So Drives practice attorney, I know, or practice, yes. um, practice owner went through, say, vet school with mm -hmm. their friends and they both end up opening practices down the line and they share handbooks <laughs> and they're like totally right. different practices with totally right, different right. policies oh, and yeah. number of staff. And I'm like, yeah, you borrowed oh, your yeah. friend's policy, you know, your handbook. But like mm -hmm. you said, they don't follow the rules. It sits on the, um, you know, shelf and collects dust and yeah. it's, it just doesn't match up to your practice at all whatsoever. That's for a practice yeah. under 10 employees and you have one that's 25. Oh, it's, I had to work with a practice that their handbook literally was dated 1992. <laughs> right, it's insane to me. 1992 was the version that was active. And I looked at it and went, Trash none it. of these laws right. are even in effect anymore. And all of them, but exactly all of them. Right. And so you've, you've <laughs> addressed two major issues that you need to be cognizant of, right? Not yeah. It's not a one size fits all for handbooks. You want to make sure your yeah. handbook has what policies you want. Exactly. Not your friend's policies, because you may have very right. different views. Again, different size practices. Yeah, yeah, cultures, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So you want it tailored to what you actually want your practice to look like. And you're right. If it's old, you should be getting it reviewed. I mean, no more, no less than once. Right. I mean, it's it's got to be kind of a frequent thing. Jennifer, the next question is, if we could kind of clone you and have you on, um, I guess the term is retainer, but more like, a, you know, kind of thinking of a practice attorney, a business attorney, a uh, labor attorney is that kind of in-house in-house cancel wouldn't that be nice if any of our gosh i wish afford that do you i know uh you know i know that some attorneys will 
either for $0 down or some amount down, and then just pay on kind of either, you know, uh, hourly, like with, you know, emails or quick phone calls and stuff, and just kind of have like, uh, essentially that ongoing bill uh, to be consultants. What do you think? Obviously, you you get a payday a from this, but of, what would be yeah, you, in right. your view? Yeah, <laughs> having uh, having yourself as and do you offer that service to employers to even if it's once or twice a year to look at the handbook and stuff that's not even in the realm of like litigation, right? But what are the services you offer your small to medium business clients, and what do you think the benefits are to um, engaging with a, a labor law attorney who is that accessible essentially as a consultant to help out the practice? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So. I just have an engagement letter with my clients so they know that I'm their attorney. I don't, you know, they don't pay me a monthly fee to have that. And then they just get billed for time spent. That said, we also have arrangements where if there is a retainer, it's a, a it's a flat fee. It's it's really more for people who have a lot of needs so that they can kind of budget and we can budget. And so they know that they can pick up the phone for every time they call and they're not getting nickel and dime. They're paying the same amount for the whole month. But the it's not so much of just being on the retainer, it's the relationship. And so if you have a, a, an employment attorney that you have a relationship with, you should be thinking of them as your strategic partner. They should be notifying you of changes in the law because like we said, that's not your job, right? Managers, they can't keep up with all these right. changes. They typically, like our firm, we do, we have a labor and employment law newsletter that we you can be on a list for and you get those updates as well. But so that you know, if something happens, you can just call them and they're going to answer the phone and give you advice. And while you may hate the idea of paying for a phone call, that one phone call can save you tons of money down the road. Huge, right. Right. So and so huge. you got to look at it like that. Like they can provide you with guidance and navigating situations so that you can avoid a lawsuit. Because if, if you don't avoid a lawsuit and you do something without asking, it could be really costly later. Or if litigation is inevitable, they could help get you in the strongest position for the defense, making sure you're documenting things, right? So I always think it's better to pay for that $500 call than to pay out a huge damages yeah. award in the future if you mess up. I also like to think of it as they're in medicine, think about it like going to the doctor. If you have a persistent cough, it's good to get medicine and treatment before it turns into pneumonia. The initial visit yeah. might take a few hours of time, but it saves you in the future if you have to take off a week or two from, mm, for pneumonia. So it's kind of preventative medicine in a way, right. um, and it's really important. So I think there's a lot of services that can be provided. It depends on the relationship you have, but think of them as your strategic partner and as the way to kind of help you navigate these tricky issues. So I completely agree, Jennifer. And I think, man, if I could have one on speed dial, you know, that that's as a practice manager, that would be like, <laughs> what do I want for Christmas? You know? <laughs> Little kid in a candy jar. Like, I'll take it. You know, Jennifer, I had asked you before um, some legal mistakes for us to avoid. Let's flip that around and say, if you could give us one or two really good action items for us to start like what would be one or two things that you can say, do this tomorrow and it will save you in the long run. So yes, call your practice attorney when you, you know, are in a pickle. What are some things that we can be doing on a regular basis as managers to help us even prevent having to call you in the first place? Great question. Well, one of the first things that doesn't necessarily prevent you from calling me, but gives you some insurance is actually making sure you have insurance, have EPLI, employment liability insurance. I think that's really important. Love it. Yes. And yes. that's really important. It doesn't even matter to me. In fact, sometimes it takes money away from my billable hours because you get panel counsel that defends you. But it's really important to have. 
but it also helps you frame issues if you are going through a difficult separation or termination, because if you have a really low deductible, you might be more willing to not offer more, right? Versus if you have a $100,000 deductible, you kind of want to resolve that quicker. So having EPLI insurance and knowing what it covers and what your deductible amount is, is first. So call your broker. The second one is what we just talked about, making sure you have a handbook. And if you don't get one immediately, the third one, your neighbors, <laughs> exactly. Get a real one. Don't get it off get the internet. Real one. Don't get it You're off not, the internet. That's yeah, great. The internet write ones, it for you. Yes. It's, you know, you're not going to get, it's, it's almost better not to have one at that point. And the third thing is, again, looking at employee classification. And what I tell people is if you don't have any non-exempt employees and keeping in mind that non-exempt employees means the ones who get, they get paid by the hour and they get overtime. If you don't have any of those employees, that could be a problem. I would say exemption is the exception. And so that's one of the first things you can look at is, do I have a classification problem? And if 100% or 95% of your staff is paid salary and not hourly and isn't getting overtime, if they work more than 40 hours a week, that could be a concern. And let's talk about that real quick, <laughs> Jennifer. Yeah, because I think what, in veterinary medicine, we have, it's, it's very distinct roles that we can classify in ex- exempt categories. The most obvious one are veterinarians. They are exempt. They fall under the professional exemption. That's not a problem for them to be classified under uh, as an exempt employee. The other one that can get sticky is a practice manager. And some people have that title by default, but they don't truly qualify under an exempt employee. And the rule of thumb is, you know, if they're conducting, I think is it over 51% of their job duties has to be supervising someone else, or I think it's a team of two or five or something like that. Mm -hmm. But a true practice manager that is not working as a Um, a technician or working as a receptionist and just because they do the schedule or just because they do payroll or just because they go to the bank to get change, that does not make them an exempt employee. Some people will have their um, RBTs or head tech under an exemption and as exempt employees. And nope, 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 nope. nope, nope. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. And it's just because, well, they work, you know, the same hours every day. And so they can be salaried and salary does not mean exempt. Yeah. So don't, don't confuse those two. Right. And sometimes right. employees don't understand why it's better to be non-exempt and get really upset. Like if you find that you have misclassified and then you're trying to figure out how to correct that, which is also tricky and you want to get an attorney to work with you on that, messaging that to the employee is really important if you to do it the right way because some of them get really mad like what do you mean i have to now mm-hmm. clock my right. time oh, absolutely. you know they think of salary mm-hmm. yeah. as being like this really great thing and that makes my my position more important and it's not true uh and and that's why you get in trouble but yeah sometimes i think the the vets minds are in the right place right they're thinking oh well i'm treating them as a salaried employee but yeah so if you do have to make that fix you want to make sure you do that right. Jennifer, I can only imagine the amount of clients and I don't, I mean, <laughs> I can't even imagine the amount of people that you work with and the stories that you must have. And either with a client or for us, an employee, an employer, a practice owner, or whoever it can be, we're in those moments, like your eyes pop out of your head, you know, your chin hits the ground, palm hits the forehead, like no freaking way. I cannot make this shit up. This just happened. 
Can you share a story where you were just jaw dropping? Can't make this shit up. Oh my God. I wish I had 20 hours to share so many stories because <laughs> I've seen I more pictures or heard more, <laughs> right? more about it. pictures that shouldn't be being taken. And, but oh, I think one oh that actually just, i never would have expected had to do with a client that was having major employee issues and the owner of the business was undergoing some health challenges and had a conservator appointed to handle his affairs. And that person stepped in to manage the business. And she also happened to be an attorney, but not an employment attorney. So she reached out to me to go with her to the, to the workplace to have this employee staff meeting and, and deal with some issues. So I thought, okay, yeah, I can do that. And as after we finished the meeting, as we're getting ready to leave, she asked me if I minded helping her retrieve some items from the office that the owner requested that she bring back. So I said, yeah, sure, no problem. So as we go into his office, she pulls out two huge Louis Vuitton bags out of her briefcase, opens a safe, hands me a bag, and she starts loading the bags with gold bars from the safe. And <laughs> no way. I've never oh. seen a gold <laughs> bar wow. before. Um, and oh they're pretty gosh. heavy. And yeah. I was certainly not expecting this. So then we carry out these like really heavy big bags out to the front oh of the business gosh. in the middle of DC during broad daylight where there was a black Uber wow. SUV waiting. So we then took the Uber to a restaurant, <laughs> met the owner no outside, way. loaded the gold into his car. So I think that was... <laughs> Do you feel like you just did something yes, super illegal? That's what I did. I, right. Yes. Like I am part of some sort of embezzlement scheme. It what was is the closest like to a bank mafia? heist I'd wow. ever come, right? right? Yeah, and pretty oh close. It was pretty so close. legal, but it just felt oh, totally man. wrong. <laughs> Was there a guy named Guido involved? If there was a Guido, <laughs> right, you should right. have probably disclosed to your attorney that, well, it is funny that <laughs> you may have been involved. When in I got back CD. to the office, I did talk to like our ethics person and just said, "Listen, I just want to make you aware of this." It was totally right, on yeah. the up and up, but wow. I feel a little Am I an accomplice now. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh. hilarious! Oh my gosh, good thing. Well, gold. It could have been diamonds. Yeah, right, it could yeah. have been you know twenty dollar yeah. bills, guns, dead uh, bodies. Unmarked bills. I was not wow. ready for that. Oh, Jennifer. <laughs> Well, thank you for that. That was hilarious. Hey, Andrea here. Have you seen our social media pages? Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find us on our website, www.positiveleaders.com. And if you like what you see there, be sure to give Rhonda and Linda a shout out over at Dog Days Consulting. They do all of our social media management. They even built our website. Those ladies can work some creative magic for your business and your brand. Check them out on Facebook at Dog Days Consulting or visit their website at www.dogdaysconsulting.com. Tell me about your most epic failure that has left a lasting impact. Um, renting an RV to go on an RV adventure with my family. I built it up in my mind that it was going to be awesome. We were going to do crafts and I paid extra so that the owner would clean the bathroom contents so we wouldn't have to do that. And on the way back, we realized they never plugged it. So every time anyone was using the restroom, it was going all over the highway. That had a <laughs> lasting impact on me. It took me 10 years to rent an RV again. I just did wow. this past July didn't have that issue, but it was another disaster. So RVs are not my, um, are not my jam. Tell me about your proudest moment. When I made partner after having my second child. Why employment law? What do you just love about uh, your profession? 
managing everybody's problems and seeing the craziest things ever. <laughs> I mean, that's it's fun and it's always different. Self-care. How do you practice it? How do you decompress from work? <laughs> that's kind of funny. What is that? But no, spending time with my family, reading. I love to read. I also love to cook and I love to travel. I also love to have cocktails with friends mixed in with an occasional dance party. How do you balance work and life? And do you experience any work guilt in that balance? I think I've finally gotten um, pretty good at this, but I'm fortunate enough now to be able to control my work life. So even though I'm at a firm, I'm primarily responsible for my workload, which is pretty freeing. But when I was an associate, I struggled terribly with work-life balance. I had many tears were shed and the guilt was terrible. But I did get to a point where I felt I was failing at everything. So I took control over the situation, told my firm I wanted to reduce my hours and they agreed. So I was still full-time, but reduced my billable hour requirement to 80% of what it would have been. And that was life-saving for me. I've never regretted it. And to this day, I still do it and it works great. What keeps you up at night, things that stress you out or things that cause you anxiety in your firm, in your practice? Diversity and retention, hands down. Uh, Law firm life is tough for parents, for young parents. Uh, Many leave finding it too hard or go in-house or they leave for the government or leave the practice of law altogether. And it's not a problem that's unique to my firm, but it kills me when it happens. So what keeps me up at night is trying to fix this, trying to come up with policies that protect our valuable resources, which are our attorneys, from leaving. What gets you up and out of bed in the morning and what excites you to start your day? Looking forward to the next problem to solve. I do love what I do. I love my clients. I I like being able to control my work, but also going to my kids' games. My oldest is a baseball player at Virginia Tech, and I'm looking forward to getting to see him play. My middle child is a soccer goalie, and my youngest is just starting field hockey. So I love watching them do what they love, regardless of the level of play. Awesome. Well, Jennifer, thank Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. This has been awesome. Your knowledge was amazing. Your mic drops were amazing. (laughs) And I know that our listeners got a ton out of it. Andrea, thank you for all the HR California angle inputs. And uh, again, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for speaking with the VHMA, which is both an organization that Andrea and I are involved in and members of as CVPMs. Well, and thanks for having me. It was was actually really fun. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Have a great weekend. Excellent. Have a great weekend. For all the positive leaders listening out there, we hope you learned something to take back to your practice to put into use tomorrow. We want to hear from you, good, bad, and everything in between. So email us at positiveleaders at gmail.com. That's positive with a -A P-A-W. Want to hear about a specific topic on the podcast? Email us. Want to have your you can't make this shit up story featured? Email us. You can listen to us on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Positive Leadership Podcast and be sure to rate us. Check out our website at www.positiveleaders.com. That's positive with a -A P-A-W. And as always, catch us on all the socials. This is Andrea. And David. Signing off until next time. Stay happy and sane.
The Positive Leadership Podcast is solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature, and such information, statements, comments, views, and opinions, and the receipt of this podcast by any listener are not intended to be and should not be construed as the provision of any business advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers and guests, are those of Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and their guests only, may not be current, and do not represent the statements, comments, views, and opinions of any other person or business entity. Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and or the Positive Leadership Podcast do not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage of any kind whatsoever, is expressly disclaimed.